Welcome to the Hey Salespeople podcast, where we focus on delivering immediately actionable best practices for sales professionals. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Today, we have a very unusual episode of the Hey Salespeople podcast. I reached out to try to find people who were leaders in sales and landed on three brothers. So I'm really thrilled to have the McDonough brothers on today. As I said, there are three of them. They all work in sales and they're all working in Boston. So it's kind of an interesting combination. We're going to hear a lot about their story today and what they've learned along their respective journeys. I'll just introduce each of them briefly and then we'll get into the podcast. So the first brother in no particular order, I'm sure they're probably jockeying for position of who's actually first brother, is Jeff McDonough. Jeff was very early to Seismic Software, where he was the VP of Inside Sales and built out an inside sales organization there. He is currently the owner of Ship Boston, a recruiting agency. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Hey, Jeremy. Thanks for having me. All right. Great having you. Second brother, again, you guys will have to tell me what order you guys rank yourselves in, is Mike McDonough. Mike is self-described as the lunatic of the group, so I'm quite curious as to how that came about. But he was a firefighter and paramedic who moved over into the world of B2B sales, starting out as a BDR. And he is at Seismic. His brother, Jeff, recruited him in there and now is the RVP for enterprise sales in the East region. Welcome, Mike. Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me. And last but not least is Jim McDonough. He's the VP of sales for ThreatStack. They are a Boston cybersecurity company, and he's been working in the early stage startups for about 15 years now. So I think they all have some pretty serious qualifications. So welcome. Welcome, Jim. Hey, good morning, Jeremy. Thanks for having us. And uh, yeah, I definitely rank myself as number one on this list. We'll get that out of the way. So I will ask you guys my usual set of questions that I ask on the podcast, and then we'll get into how, how the three of you guys ended up in the same profession. My first question, and uh, I guess I'll start with Mike. What was your favorite sales book of all time and why? Right now, it's actually a book I'm just about to complete. So maybe it's because it's so fresh in my mind, but I'm really enjoying Never Split the Difference, which is pretty cliche. There's a lot of folks that love that book, but I think it's a pretty unique take from a FBI negotiator. I've learned a lot about it and I got into sales late, so I'm trying to cram as many books as I can to, to catch up. That is a fantastic book written by Christopher Voss. Strongly recommend that book. So, Jim, how about you? I'm going to go with The Challenger Sale. It's a book that I read a few years back, and it took a, a lot of the sales methodologies that I had learned over my career and sort of tied it all together and made more sense to me. That is the way I prefer to sell. So going through that book, it just felt like you know, something that I could immediately apply because I had learned a lot of those skills already through like Sandler and spin selling. But this particular methodology just seemed like the better fit for me. Do you think of Challenger as bringing ideas to people that they hadn't thought of? Or do you think of it as like really being more in your face challenging them? I think people misunderstand. Maybe the title is a little misleading. I don't think it's necessarily you're in their face like, for example, right, like the majority of the products that I've sold, they aren't exactly like established. For instance, I sold API management. We kind of created a category. So we really had to evangelize and we had to challenge the prospects that we were talking to and bring kind of new ideas that they maybe had never thought of before. So, no, I don't think it's in your face. I think it's, it's more about getting somebody to think about something that they hadn't thought of before to make that initial connection. Yeah, I love the way you describe that. I think it is about evangelizing new ideas. So that's a great way to describe it. So Jeff, what was your favorite sales book of all time? 
So thank God I've read at least one. I think maybe just one. <laughs> were you the one before the podcast they were saying you weren't sure if you had actually read? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just listen to what Mike's been reading because he talks about stuff like that all the time. Um, but yeah, I read Predictable Revenue. My, my boss at Seismic first day handed it to me and he said, we're going to build a $100 million business and I'd like to see if you could model it after some of the things in this. So Aaron Ross, great book, really helped us out early. Really, really fantastic book. It has been getting some, you know, negative flack lately because I think just they blame the authors for all the cold calls and emails and so on, but it has definitely helped a tremendous number of businesses. I think it's always funny when people like to get up on their soapbox and, and give companies a hard time for cold calling, yet most of those people, if you look at the company that they work for, you've probably had one of their BDRs reaching out to you. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's 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 an interesting take from people. I was talking to somebody about what is it like to stay motivated as an SDR. And, and the ones who do stay motivated are the ones who approach every day with a learning mindset that maybe they want to test a new way of introducing themselves, or maybe they want to test a new way of stating the value proposition, or they're working on some skill. To keep it interesting, you do need to bring that learning mindset and challenge yourself every day mindset to be successful. Yeah, they need the freedom to change, be able to try different things like that. If, if there's only one playbook and, and one person telling them how to do it, it's, it gets stale. Mike, what was the first thing you ever remember selling in your life? I actually worked at Sears uh, back in the day in high school, and I was selling tractors, snowblowers, all those sorts of equipment that I've never used before. So I'd read the manuals and then pretend like I was an expert. But it was actually a pretty cool gig. And uh, I remember one time actually getting to the store during a blizzard. I was the only one that actually made it to the store on the kind of the floor sales team there. And a bunch of folks who hadn't planned appropriately showed up to buy uh, snowblowers. And I wound up selling the place out. I got like a couple bucks each snowblower and it was pretty cool when I was like 16 years old. I felt like a millionaire. You're definitely the first person that I've spoken with that sold snowblowers. You might be the last. I don't know. <laughs> Probably. Uh, how about you, Jeff? I worked at a company called Magic Beans. It's a store for kids. And one day I sold $9,000 worth of strollers. It happened to be to one person. Jonathan Papelbon's wife came in and she was going to like two baby showers in the coming weeks. And she was like, you know what? I'm going to stock up and buy four or five of these things. I think it's because I did such a good job demonstrating and breaking down the strollers. But uh, yeah, it was a great day and got to know a lot about the, the Red Sox players. That's insane. I can't imagine spending that much, even even if you divide 9K by four, I can't imagine spending that much <laughs> on the stroller. But they were, they were great strollers. I just had to carry them to the car. Yeah, that was the extra service there. <laughs> yeah. Then Jim, how about you? What was the first thing you remember selling? We had a neighborhood, pretty fun neighborhood growing up, ton of people, always good summers. So we used to set up lemonade stands. That's the first thing I remember selling. It took these guys longer, I guess, to figure out how to sell. I was doing that back when I was seven. Nowadays, do you actually stop when you see a kid selling lemonade or do you keep driving? Yeah, and it's always terrible lemonade. <laughs> I don't know who's going to answer this question first, but how did... How did three brothers end up in the exact same profession in B2B sales? I can't really speak why Jeff or Jim necessarily got into it. I do remember like kind of making fun of them and thinking like, oh, these guys are, are selling technology. They're nerds. I didn't really know what selling software was like. So just complete ignorance on my part. Um, and this is Mike the firefighter talking, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. 
But all of a sudden I was in need of a job after a few back injuries from the fire department. So that's when I started talking to Jeff a bit and got introduced here at Seismic and realized obviously software sales is totally different than what I thought it was. It's actually a great profession that I'm excited to be a part of. Are there any skills that you learned as a firefighter and paramedic that you bring to the sales profession? Yes, absolutely. You wouldn't think so. And sometimes you have to like be kind of conscious of like what those translatable skills are. But when you come into a profession that you know absolutely nothing about, you need to try to figure out like, okay, how can I apply something I did before that seems like apples and oranges? So sellers have to be super curious. They have to understand each prospect, what is going on with them, what their unique challenges and pains are take like a holistic approach to the way they're approaching a sales cycle. And it's actually not that much different than walking in on a medical call and seeing a, a sick or injured patient and trying to understand what's their past medical history, what's the medications that they're on, what are my diagnostic tools telling me so that I can bring a little bit of calm to the situation and make sure I'm making the right decisions and those sorts of things. Qualifying and being able to diagnose and stuff like that, also being fearless, you know, running into a burning building versus a cold call is it's really not, I never had to tell him like, Hey, hit the phones. It was, it was easy for him. He always said, I have your six. We had a team that was very, very tight knit. And I, I have to give a ton of credit to him because everyone knew no matter what, it was never about Mike and sales. People get really focused on themselves and their goals, but he brought a really big team mentality to the group and it made everyone better. The team mentality is something I, I think that is obviously very much the makings of people who are sales managers, right? It's okay to be a lone wolf and to crush your quota, but if other people are not seeking you out, then you're probably not yet manager material until that sort of thing excites you of sharing and helping other people. I presume the I have your sick is basically a way of saying I have your back. Exactly. You wrote a great blog about it. You should check it out. And time out real quick. Did Jeff, we got that recorded, right? He just gave me a compliment. <laughs> and did you guys have parents in sales at all or they're not salespeople? my dad was on the enemy side he was in procurement and then my mom is a nurse what do they want you to be when you grew up i mean everyone wants to be a doctor or a firefighter or a teacher or whatever so mike i guess lived out that dream but jim what did you want to be when you grew up yeah, it took me a long time to really figure out that sales would be a good profession after college i bartended probably too long but that was, you know, my first taste of what sales was like. You really had to think on your feet all the time and really get to know your customers. And if you wanted to make some good money through tons of conversations with people that would come through the bar, I, I kind of landed on the fact that the people that seemed to be making the most money were in sales. So that sounded like a good path for me. I imagine you learned a lot about building rapport as a bartender. Yeah. What were some of the rapport building skills you learned as a bartender that you think still apply in, in this world? You want to get those repeat customers, you know, people who come back to see you because they are the ones who are typically going to give you the best tip. Those are the people you could rely on that would come in on the regular and be able to, you know, just count on that money. It was just getting to know them, you know, understand them as people, you know, kind of what motivated them, what they like to talk about. So that they felt like, you know, it wasn't, they could get a drink anywhere. There's a hundred bars around where I worked, but you know, if I could get to know them, they could get to know me, they'd come back to see me. One thing I wanted to ask you, shifting gears a little bit over to Jeff, is all about kind of hiring and recruiting, because I know you guys have had a lot of opportunity. And maybe to start with Jeff, you had the opportunity to recruit, I think, something like 100 people, at least at Seismic, when you were building the inside sales team. What do you look for when you're recruiting talent? My theory, wherever I go, but specifically what we did at Seismic was always 
gather everyone who's going to be involved in the process. So for me, it was people I trusted whose you know opinion I thought was spot on. They weren't going through the motions and in interviews. So gather a committee of people that you trust first. Get those folks in a room before you start the process. Um, you know, you can do this every six months or, or whatever you want to do to freshen things up. But focus in on what the role is and what's the most important part of that role. So for us at, at Seismic early stages, we needed to find the hungriest people in Boston. We wanted to find people that would literally run through a wall. I mean, in one of my interviews, I asked somebody, give me an example of when you're competitive. And because everyone says they're competitive in interviews. And he gave me an example when he fist fought his cousin at a party over something very minor. And, <laughs> you know, I'm laughing and I'm looking at him and he's looking straight through me. Like he's not laughing. He's dead serious. I'm like, wow, man, like I, I can see you running through a wall right now. He's like, if you want me to try, I'll do it. We want people that are going to hustle that aren't going to make excuses and can deal with rejection. So we interviewed to those skills. You know, we tried to base the conversation and, and have them tell us stories about how they were that type of person. It's different levels. So like if it's BDRs, it's that. I think it's building blocks. So you need to have, to become a really good AE, inside sales closer, you need to have that hustle. You need to have that thick skin, but you also need to be naturally curious because you're over the phone closing. You need to learn everything that you can't see in the room. So you get asked the right questions. You got to figure everything out and be, be able to put puzzles together. Then that builds to field sales. You know, you need to have those building blocks and then you need to be really savvy in a room. You need to be presentable. You need to know how to read a room. You need to know how to, to push at the right time. I think the most important thing in hiring and even so with all my clients now, you know, everyone has a different set of criteria, but sitting together and then interviewing for those skill sets that you want to see. You can't be afraid to make a mistake either. If you're growing a, a growing business like a seismic or a threat stack or the hundreds of companies in Boston that are growing really fast, you're going to miss every now and then. But if you stay true to what you're looking for and you don't get gun shy, you can figure it out pretty quick. The cost of a miss is considered to be very high, right? Because not only have you hired and trained someone, it might take you three to six months. How do you detect a bad hire? I think if people are honest with themselves, you, you know pretty quickly if it was a miss. You know, we only had a couple misses, thank God, it's seismic, but like we knew right away. I think the cost becomes expensive when you don't act on it, when you're afraid to address it. You know, if you don't have managers that are willing to sit down, either work through it, some people just need a push. But if you're afraid to make the move and you just carry them on for too long, not so much their output, because you're never going to get a lot of output from a bad hire. It's the other players that you have around them. They see you carrying dead weight. It kills the morale. Putting people on long plans that they hit once and you end up having them for 60 days and stuff like that. It's just bad for the locker room. So I think the, the cost of a bad hire can be mitigated a little bit if you can act on it pretty quickly. Flipping it over to great hires. Jim, who's the best hire you ever made and what made them so special? The best hire I ever made is a woman named Pia Heilman. I hired her as a BDR at Mashery, the API management company that I work for that was based out in San Francisco. She came in as a BDR. She's just like type A personality, somebody who just constantly pushing herself to get better. Fast forward seven or eight years, and she was actually director of sales for me at ThreatStack. I'll probably be working for her someday if she'll hire me. You know, she just, she's one of those people who, you knew immediately, like every single person that interviewed her was like, okay, what do we have to do to get her on board? 
she was actually already in a closing role. And we convinced her to come on as a BDR because we had a really quick path to closing. So she came on, took that risk, and her career has just taken off since. We actually looked at 1,500 SDRs who got promoted to AE in various companies. And we actually found that, yeah, one of the signals is that the person was in a closing role and willing to take that step back and do a BDR for the fast path. And maybe they got a closing opportunity very early in their career and they wanted to move up into a better company that maybe sold at a higher price point. I presume that was what she was after. Yeah, that's exactly right. Choosing more of a kind of high velocity inside sales model where you hire somebody that has little to no sales experience and they come in as a closer right away. You know, I think that that's great and that model works, but I do think if you want to be truly great in this profession, putting a year in or even just six months in at that SDR level, there's nothing better than that. You really learn how, not only how to sell, but just to be able to deal with the grind that is sales. One last question on recruiting, and this one's from Mike. Since you're hiring enterprise sales folks over there, what do you look for when you're hiring someone who's capable of being a successful enterprise seller? I really like the idea of promoting internally. So folks that have been in that BDR role or maybe they've managed an inside sales team here or whatever that may be, I always look at that team first. Now, having said that, you can only have, you know, if you're building out a team from five to 10 to 15, one, it's not scalable to do that. And two, you need folks that do have closing experience as well. It's one thing to have people that know the product, the people, the process internally. It's like, all right, now I just have to work with them on some of those closing motions and how to sell and go deeper into accounts and those things. And then there's the flip side of bringing in folks that don't know the product. They don't know the people in the process internally, but they've got X amount of years of selling experience. What I've learned through some trial and error, a big thing is maybe they haven't been selling in my space per se, but... Ideally, I would like to see folks that have been selling into sales and marketing before. What I've seen is folks that have been selling, let's say, into IT for a very long time and then try to make a switch over to sales and marketing. It's just a really different type of conversation. Not to say that you can't do it, but folks that have been calling into CMOs and VP of marketings and CROs and heads of sales and those things usually make a much better transition to where I'm at. There are people who sell at the 10K ACV price point, 100K, million, 10 million. Do you try to look for people who have been selling at the price point or have you found that does not matter? It doesn't have to be apples for apples, but like there's a big difference between a transactional sales model where you're closing 20 deals a month over the phone on a credit card. That's a unique skill set to have in itself that you know I've never done. Now, having said that, there's a big difference then of saying, hey, I'm closing five deals all year, but it's going to be X amount of millions of dollars. It's just a different skill set. I'm not saying that you can't make a leap up or down, but it's a pretty big gap you have to cover when you could say, hey, we have two call closes opposed to, you know, a nine month sales cycle. Yeah, I've actually done both. And, you know, I think the one thing that you, you know, if you're making the transition from the transactional to more of the larger deal size, to me, it boils down to patience. You need to have the patience to be able to work a deal six, seven figures. It's not like that push to get a deal closed as quickly as possible. It's more about thinking a little more strategically about how to get a deal done and maximize the value of it. For sure. Patience. And I think like any role, I don't care how long you've been selling. The one thing I've learned in the five years that I've been doing this, right, which isn't a ton of time, is even in five years, the B2B selling has changed 
dramatically, I'd say a couple of times. So you could even get somebody that comes from a world of closing six or seven figure deals. They have all this experience and they don't want to change. They don't want to learn new skills. So on the flip side of that, there's times where you might want to say, hey, I'm going to take a little bit of a gamble on somebody because there's tremendous upside. They're coachable. I think there's pros and cons to both. And that's why going back to what Jeff said, I think getting other people involved in the interview process and getting different opinions is really important. Think about maybe one piece of advice that you wish you knew or had given yourself as a sales leader, or as a new salesperson. And it can be something we talked about today or it can be something we didn't cover yet. If I could go back 10 years, I would have told myself to just chill out, you know, kind of look at the bigger picture in terms of my career progression. I was one of the top performers on the sales team, thought that I just needed to get to management as quickly as possible. I had a great manager at the time who told me to pump the brakes and that I had a lot more to learn. But I think I caused myself a little bit too much anxiety over getting to that next step too fast. And I see reps now that I'm in a sales leadership role that are like that. And they spend so much time focused on what's next versus what they're actually doing today and being just so great at that that it causes some reps to jump around too much. You know, fortunately, I had somebody who kept me focused and kept me in the role. But if I could go back and tell myself and do it over again, I would have been a little bit more patient with my career and taken it a little bit slower in terms of moving up the ladder. Jeff, how about for you? If you could go back in time and give yourself a piece of advice on sales, what would that be? I got three pieces of advice that I, I live by and I love the first one was when I first got into management was never hire an asshole. One, one bad person can spoil the group. The other one was sit next to the person who's best and, and outwork them. And then my brother, Jim, I've actually never really talked to him about this, but he told me when I first met my, my mentor and, and boss at seismic, uh, at Calvin, he was like, do everything you can to take stuff off his plate and just manage up. So those are my big three things that I always live by. If I could go back even just three years, uh, never mind 10, like my old brother, Jim, I would just take my ego out of things. I think I believed in myself too much. And once you believe your own hype, you kind of get knocked back to reality. So just take ego out of it, do what's right by everyone and, and work hard. That's it. I think for a seller, right? I'm still learning every day. I'm far from perfect, but in sales, there's no off season. I struggled with that my first couple of years. I've got quite an addictive personality. So like nights, weekends, whether it's prospecting or reading things or getting caught up in it and uh, not taking the time to breathe and spend some time with my family and uh, relax a little because I think you can burn yourself out. Just taking some moments, whether it's vacation or a long weekend or like my wife and I, when I get home, it's just taking the phone, putting it aside, spend some time with her and my kids. Um, I think it's really important for salespeople because again, there's really no off season at all. One of the hardest things that I've learned, don't get caught up in trying to be somebody else or what other people think is like a best practice all the time, right? Take that knowledge, but always try to turn things into your own and be yourself. And then I would say from a management standpoint, the biggest mistake I made was my 101s early. And that was just making them too much just about the business, about pipeline, about reviewing things. Give a little bit of that time, some maybe all that time to your sellers. And so one of the things that I've been practicing most recently with them from great advice from somebody else was, why don't you just send me agenda of what you'd like to cover on your one-on-one? It can't always be a pipeline. It can't always be about inspecting deals. Sometimes it's okay to take a step back and talk about other things and make sure that you know what they want to do with their careers. You're always staying on top of that and guiding them that way. 
And just recognizing when a seller's having an off day or an off week, you're going to have more bad days than good days as a seller. It's just the way it is, right? So just making sure everybody's in a good place. They're feeling good about who they are and that they're being authentic. When sellers start to push, they start being somebody else. Thank you guys again. This is a Hail Sales People podcast. We had the McDonough brothers, Jeff McDonough, who is owner of Ship Boston Recruiting, Mike McDonough, ex-firefighter and paramedic, who is now the RVP for Enterprise Sales East at Seismic, and Jim McDonough, VP of Sales at ThreatStack. So great having the three of you guys on. Thanks again. Once again, I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Laura Hall is our executive producer. Our artwork is by Greg Klinkshern. This episode was edited by Peter Lopinto. Subscribe to us on your favorite app to learn more immediately actionable best practices from our awesome guests. Thank you for listening to the Hey Salespeople podcast.